Uh, I saw a headline in the newspaper or in the news online a couple weeks ago, and I wanted to show it to you. The headline says this, a woman is rescued after falling in a toilet trying to get her phone. That is a true headline. I think I have a picture of the headline somewhere around here. Uh, this lady was sitting in a porta potty, and her phone fell into the porta potty. And what do you do when your home phone falls in the? You climb in after it, but she couldn't get out. So she's in the porta potty. She calls the firefighters and says, "I need to be rescued." Okay, three things. Number one, how do you even? Like, how do you? How do you even? I don't. I can't. <laughs> Number two, God bless David Stark and all the firefighters. God bless those guys. Number three, what is wrong with our world? Now, we could joke about a lady falling into the porta potty and say, what's wrong with the world? But most of us can look at the news, can look at what's happening in our society. And we have that question that something just isn't right in our world. Whether you are a Christian or not. We all can probably recognize there's something that just isn't right. Can you see it and feel it in your world around you? There's a gal by the name of Beatrice Webb, who was one of the architects of the British welfare system way in the early 1900s. And she wrestled with this idea of what is wrong with the world, and she spent her career trying to, to figure that out. And at the end of her career, 35 years later, this is what she concluded. She said, inside humanity... There are these permanent impulses towards greed for power and wealth. These permanent impulses that lead us to selfishness and violence and corruption in business and government that leads to war and atrocities. She spent her career to learn what scripture would tell us. There is something wrong in the world. In fact, throughout history, if you go through history, we have tried all sorts of things to correct what's gone wrong in our world. I mean, we had that, that age where we felt if we could just have a revolution and bring democracy, if we could have democracies rather than monarchies, then the world would be a better place, right? Then there was uh, the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment promised that if we would educate ourselves, we would be better people. And then we had the advance of science. And we just said if we could advance our technology, then humans would be more civilized. But what's happened? is through all the revolutions we've had in democracies, people are still oppressed. Education, it made evil people a little bit more clever. And science and technology has given us the atomic bomb, has given us cybercrime, has given us the Kardashians. Has it improved anything? Democracy and education and science, these are not bad things. These are good things. But they can't address what is wrong with the human nature. Here at Restoration Church, one of our family values is we say that we are Bible people. So we're going to open up the Word of God. And, and so to help us process through how do we read Scripture, is we started a series last week that we're calling The Story, where we're going to look at the very beginning of the Bible, all the way through the end times in Revelation, to see that the one main narrative of the Bible, the one meta-narrative throughout every page of Scripture which includes all stories, all commands, all characters, all events. They're part of one story, pointing us to Jesus Christ, pointing us to what he did on the cross for us. So last week we started in the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, and we saw that God created the heavens and the earth. He created light, 
He separated the day from the night. He, he, he created dry land and the oceans. He gave us the plants and the animals and all those things. And he did all these things and he declared this is good. And then God made his prized creation, man and woman, made in his image. And he declared that very good. And so in Genesis chapter 2, we have Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden, and it is this perfect place. In fact, Genesis 2.25, a little bit of summary of the Garden of Eden. And actually, I'll say Genesis 2.25 is probably my life verse. And here's what it says. The man and his wife were naked, and they were unashamed. Amen to that, right? All right. <sighs> that just got awkward. <laughs> the idea is this... This is the ideal that God created, where there's no shame, there's no fear, there's total freedom and enjoyment of God's creation and of one another. This is, this is the way it was supposed to be. And remember in Genesis 2, God gave one instruction. He said in verse 17, he said, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. And us, humanity, we're like, a toddler with an ice cream cone, and it lasts about 10 seconds before everything begins to come unravel. In fact, Genesis 3 is one of the most important uh, chapters and passages of Scripture because it shows us what's gone wrong with the world. Yet despite that, it also gives us hope. And it points us to Jesus as the one who will fix what's gone wrong. So Genesis chapter 3, tell you where we're going. We're going to see... Uh, Four key observations uh, from this chapter. And uh, number one, what is wrong with the world? And it might be a surprise to you moms, it's not that kids don't listen to their moms. What's wrong with the world is sin. Starts out in verse 1, Genesis 3.1. It says, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. We see the serpent, we know the serpent is Satan. And we, we, we open this up and we're like, okay, well, who's Satan? Where did he come from? What's wrong with him? And here's, here's the key that you've got to understand. This text is not about Satan. This text is about us. It's about humanity. See, we don't have all the answers about Satan because the point isn't Satan. The point is us. And the lies of the snake are going to cause Adam and Eve to doubt God. It says in verse 1, the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say not to eat of the tree of the garden? So maybe the serpent is coming up to say, hey, you know, did God really say that? Maybe God didn't say that. I think another way to read that would be maybe he's kind of mocking him. You know, like, like, like when somebody says something like the Cowboys are a good football team, we may mock them and say, did he really say that? Like, really? And so I could almost picture Satan kind of like, what kind of jerk or idiot would say, don't eat of the tree? Either way, whether Satan is causing Adam and Eve to doubt or he's mocking God, this leads to Adam and Eve beginning to, to doubt. Well, what did God actually say? And then it goes further because the serpent tries to get them to doubt the goodness of God. It says in, in verse 4, the serpent said, well, surely you will not, will not die because God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's asking that question. Does God really love you? Does God really love you, or is he preventing you from having something? Can you really trust God? You see, what's interesting is up until now, God was the, God was the one that told Adam and Eve what is good. 
Remember, he created things and said, this is good. He created this and that. He said, this is good. But now, the serpent is trying to say, well, you, Adam and Eve, you know what's good for you. You get to declare what is good. You know what's best. And this further begins to push that idea of we're going to doubt the goodness of God. And what happens is when we begin to doubt God, we begin to doubt his goodness, it leads to idolatry. Idolatry is simply when we take our eyes off of God and put our eyes onto something else that we think will satisfy us. So here's the idolatry in verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. This is the lust of the flesh. She saw that it fills an appetite. She saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes. This is a lust of the eyes. It looks so good. It looks so innocent. She saw that the tree was able to make one wise. This is a plight of life. It'll make me better than I was. And what is she to? She ate of it. See, no longer, no longer is she looking to God. Now she's looking to her own wisdom, her own definition of good. She looks and says, well, 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 this is idolatry. This is her worshiping the creation rather than creator. And it culminates in rebellion. You've got doubt that leads to idolatry, that leads to rebellion. Because in verse 6, she took the fruit and she ate. The words of Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way. And by the way, this is a terrible verse for men. Men, we're sitting here thinking, what's wrong with Eve? It says that she gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, Adam is not off doing manly things, working on trucks and shooting animals. 1 Timothy 2 says Adam was not deceived. He is standing right there like an idiot, waiting to see if she's going to drop dead when she eats the fruit. He is right there. Listen, this is the nature of sin. Sin follows this similar pattern in all of our lives. There's a doubt of God's goodness that leads to idolatry of thinking some other thing will make us happy and leads us to rebellion of turning our back on God and going our own way. What is wrong with the world? We're sinners. Number two, I want you to see the response to sin. Verse seven, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid from God behind the trees. God called to them and said, where are you? And I want you, I want you here to listen to, hear, listen to how Adam felt. Verse 10, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Verse 11, God says, well, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to? How did Adam feel? He felt naked. He felt shame. He felt he was exposed. He felt insecure. And this is a result of sin, is we feel exposed. And what do we do when we feel exposed? What do we do when we feel naked? We hide. We hide. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what Adam and Eve did. They sewed fig leaves together to try and, and, and hide behind clothes. Then they went and they hid behind the trees. This might be the funniest scene in all the Bible, right? Like here's God who created the, everything on the earth, who created the heavens and the earth. 
And Adam and Eve think, hey, you know what? We'll just hide behind the trees. God won't see us. It's kind of like playing hide and go seek with a toddler. You know, you just cover their face. You can't see me. You can't see me. That's what I picture Adam and Eve hiding behind the trees. God, you can't see us. We're, we're hiding. Now, I know you and I are saying, well, we don't hide behind the trees. But how do we hide from God? We hide from God when we're not honest with our sin. See, we have this pattern of comparison, right? Where we look at ourselves and we're like, we compare ourselves to somebody else. Well, well, you know, I'm not as bad as that person. So I'm actually pretty good. Like that person, they do horrible things. And I'm, I'm not doing that, so I'm, I'm not that bad. Or sometimes we minimize sins. And instead of calling a sin a sin, we call it a mistake, right? So we'll say something like this. We'll say something like, well, you know, I might have made some mistakes in my previous marriage. Does a mistake really capture the magnitude of an affair? I mean, let's just call it what it is. We say things like, I've made a mistake in my former job. Listen, a mistake is when you forget to carry the one when you're doing a math problem. A mistake is not embezzlement. That's sin. This is how we hide from God. We compare ourselves to others, or we begin to minimize it. Or thirdly, we shift the blame. That's what Adam and Eve did in verse 12. The man said, well, God, the woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit, and then I ate. It's her fault. She made me do it. Verse 13, God said to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, well, the serpent, he deceived me. See, both of them are shifting the blame onto someone else. We do that same thing. Well, it's not my fault. I was in an impossible circumstance. I had to do this. It's not my fault. They did me wrong first. It's not my fault. You know, I'm in this difficult time, and do you understand the stress I have on me? Like, you, could you expect anything different? It's not my fault. My, my spouse is impossible to live with. It's not my fault. I, I was just running with the wrong crowd, and they caused me to do these things. This is where we shift our blame. Instead of taking responsibility, it's somebody else's fault. And because you and I, because we can't bear our nakedness, of being who we really are as sinners. We hide. We compare ourselves to others. We minimize our sin. We, we shift the blame. In fact, if you want to do a, an illuminating experience, think back to your life and think about how you've tried to hide from God through comparison, through minimizing, through shame, bl <laughs> shift of blaming, I mean, it's, it's, it's a illuminating experience where you just look and say, man, I spent a lifetime of hiding. Do you know what? That's why counselors exist. Counselors exist because of verse 8, because we hide and can't be real with ourselves. And so we go to a counselor who begins to teach us, how do you begin to stop hiding and come out from the darkness? Number three. First, we have what's wrong with the world is sin. Number two, we have humanity. We don't respond well to sin. Number three, sin has devastating consequences. In fact, we'll just go through these together. Uh, first, consequence, first consequence of sin is an amplification of pain. It says in verse 16, To the woman, God said, Surely I will multiply the pain of childbearing. Listen, childbirth, I've never given birth to a child. Praise God for that. My wife has done it five times. 
And I'm just going to say on Mother's Day, praise God that women have babies because if it was up to men, there'd be a lot less babies in the world. Just throwing that out there. But beyond childbirth, I, this idea is, it's, it, it's, it's life is painful. Life is painful. We break bones. We age. Life is painful. You have this amplification of pain because of sin. We have relational conflict. In verse 16, it says to the woman, your desire will be contrary to your husband who will rule over you. He talks about, he talks about the woman having a difficulty in relating to the man, but I think this is symptomatic of bigger things. Because in fact, when you get to Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and he kills his brother. You see, this is, this is the reality of sin. It's when we take our eyes off of God and put our eyes on ourselves, which is not what we were created to do, and we just create all this relational conflict all around us. Third consequence is we have this futility. It says in verse 17, he, God said to Adam, because you listen to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten the tree that I commanded you not to eat of, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you will eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles will bring forth from you. And it's the sweat of your face. You will eat the bread until you return to the ground. Listen, our world is cursed against us. That's why when we jump and we fall back to the ground, it hurts. Because the, the, the ground is cursed against us. It's no longer our friend. We have natural disasters. We have all sorts of things that happen to us. This is where work is hard. Fourth consequence, death. Said to Adam, for you are from dust, and to dust you shall return. In fact, remember, remember what it was that was God's warning in the first place? God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then they eat of it, and they didn't drop dead immediately. But they began that process. Kind of like when you have a watch and the battery's going dead. You slowly begin to lose the glow. This is what's happening on our earth. This is what's happening in us. Our lives are slowly decaying. We feel it. Maybe not when you're young, but you hit a certain age, and it's all downhill from there. And maybe the worst of all, the worst consequence of all, is the eternal loss of the presence of God. With no way to get back in. Verse 23. The Lord sent them out of the garden. Verse 24 says, To the east of the garden he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned away, turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. See, the greatest tragedy of all is because of sin, we lost our relationship with the Father. We lost our relationship with our, with our best friend, with our shepherd, with our creator, the one who will complete our life. See, we were created by God in His image to have this relationship with Him. But because of sin, we've lost that relationship. We've lost His presence. We are no longer complete. There's a part of us that is missing. We're not experiencing wholeness and true peace and abiding joy because there's a part of us that's missing. And what do we do? We spend our lives. We spend our entire lives trying to fill that void with education and, and, and wealth and relationships and success. And you know what we do? We get really good at trying to justify 
hey, I'm, I'm really, I have to tell you how at peace I am because I'm pursuing all these things. And if I have to keep telling you how at peace I am, maybe you're really not at peace at all. These are idols. They're simply a taste of what God offers. They're a glimpse, but they're not anything that will ever satisfy us because we're not going to be satisfied until the whole is filled. And you know, what makes this chapter so unique? What makes this chapter so important is this chapter is not about Adam and Eve. It's not their story. See, in our more reflective moments, when we're willing to stop hiding from God and maybe hiding from ourselves, we see that this story is actually about you and me. I mean, you ever, you ever had that moment? You ever had that moment where something slipped out of your mouth? Something just slipped out, and you're like totally embarrassed because it just came out. Like maybe it was an outburst of anger. Maybe you spoke a harsh word towards somebody. Uh, maybe you stated like a really selfish desire. And you say it, and then all of a sudden you're like, man, I feel bad about that. I feel horrible. And you go back to the person and say, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean it. I, I didn't mean it. That's not really me. But you meant it in the moment, didn't you? If it's not really you, then where did that come from? See, perhaps what sneaks out of our mouth in those moments is actually the best reflection of what is actually in our heart. Maybe those moments that things slip out of us, maybe that is our unfiltered self. Maybe it's not the exception. Maybe it's the reflection of what is going on inside of our heart. See, this story is about you and me. We have believed the lies. We've rebelled against God. We spent our lives prioritizing the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life over and above instead of God. We've given more weight to other people's opinions than to God's opinion. We put more stock in our wisdom and our thoughts and our desires than in God's wisdom and thoughts and desires. We spent our lives pursuing that. We always think we know what's best. Every one of us, we think we know what's best. When others have threatened what we want, what do we do? We trample them, we gossip them, we become jealous about them. We're willing to, to cheat and bend the rules if it helps us get ahead. The story is about us. And I'll tell you, in every other story, We'd stop right now and say, the end. We are what's wrong with the world. Our education won't fix it. Our politics won't fix it. The end. One of the resources I've encouraged you to pick up, the Jesus Storybook Bible. When it comes to this point in Genesis chapter 3, it says every other story would say the end, but not this story. Because in this story, God, out of his great love for us, he set in motion a plan to send a redeemer that is the cure for the cause and for the consequence of our sin disease. In fact, this would be the summary of Genesis chapter 3. is that God's creation falls into chaos because of our sin, but God gives hope through a redeemer. In fact, this is the fourth observation from this chapter, is that God provides the cure for sin through Jesus. 
See, in verse 9, verse 9, it says that God came looking for Adam and Eve. And what did Adam expect? He expected destruction. That's why he hid. He knew he was wrong. He was, knew he was naked. He expected God to say, I'm going to destroy you. But instead, God's not looking for destruction. God is searching for a lost son. And when he finds him, he makes him a promise. Verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. It's the offspring of the woman. This is Jesus. And God's pointing to this cosmic battle between Satan and Jesus when the serpent is going to cause Jesus to suffer. He's going to bite his heel. He's going to put him on the cross. But Jesus will deliver the final blow and crush the head of Satan by raising from the grave. See, this promise right here in Genesis 3.15, this promise sets in motion the entire Bible. Sets in motion all of humanity. Every story that we read in Scripture, every story points to this. It shows us trying to fail at trying to cover ourselves. The scriptures show us that the Savior is coming. It shows us what the Savior does for us. It shows us what the future looks like when our hearts and when our world is finally cured of the disease of sin. This is what scripture is telling us. It is pointing us to this promise. This is what it's about. Every page bleeds the blood of Jesus to make up for our sin. And here's what God asks us. God asks us two things. We think about experiencing the cure. He asks us two things. He asks us, number one, to repent. Repentance simply means we come out of hiding. Repentance means we are willing to stop minimizing our sin. We will stop shifting the blame. We'll stop the comparison game. We say, God, it wasn't the woman you gave me. God, it wasn't my circumstance. God, it wasn't my boss. God, it wasn't the guy who cut me off the road. God, it wasn't because I was hanging with the wrong crowd. God, it was, I am the wrong crowd. That's what repentance is. Repentance is an invitation for us to get naked, figuratively speaking. To get naked before God, to take off the clothes of hiding, of self-justification, of excuses. Repentance is simply acknowledging our sin and saying, God, I've believed the lie. I've doubted you. I've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. God, I've rebelled against you. In fact, there's a pastor named J.D. Greer, and this is what he said. He said, if you expose your sin, Jesus will cover it with his blood. But if you cover your sin, Jesus will expose it. How many of us have been in that situation where our sin has been exposed because we tried to hide? First thing we need to do to experience a cure for sin, to fix what's gone wrong in the world, we need to repent. And the second thing we need to do is we need to place our faith in Jesus. See, we can't fix this disease of sin on our own. No amount of religion or education or success, none of that will fix you. Sometimes we think, if I can just be totally free and just, just experience liberation, then I'll be free from this guilt and shame. In fact, there's, there's a, a story of the playwright. I can't think of his name. He was married to Marilyn Monroe. I read that this week. And he had this idea, you know, to be free of, of, of guilt and shame, 
I'm just going to stop believing in God. Then I won't have to deal with the guilt and shame anymore. And guess what he found? No, that guilt and shame was still there. And he was looking for someone else to tell him, well done, I'm proud of you. He, we will experience that freedom when we place our faith in Jesus. In fact, when you look at what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it's actually the reverse of what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. Right? Adam and Eve, they were put in this bright and sunny garden. And God said, listen, if you obey me about the tree, you'll live. But they didn't. And they brought chaos into God's creation. And Jesus, he was also in a garden. It was a dark garden. And God said, listen, if you obey me about the tree, you'll be crushed. And he did for us. He climbed the tree of death. He climbed the cross in our place. And he turned that tree into a tree of life for you and me. Jesus took that flaming sword of justice that guarded the entrance to the presence of God. He took that flaming sword so that we could be brought back into the presence of God. This is why the story ends in verse 21, where God takes, the, takes an animal and he kills it and uses a skin to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, pointing to the death of Jesus, where through his death we are clothed in his righteousness. Listen, What's wrong with the world? Sin. And it's not just out there. It's not just in other people. It is you and me. And what does it mean for us to put our faith in him? Simply Romans chapter 10. Apostle Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the disease and the consequence of sin. Saved for life and hope and forgiveness and redemption and restoration. See, we can't fix what's gone wrong in us through education and through religion and through good works and through politics and technology. No, we are saved through Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, this is our story. Can we acknowledge that it explains what's going on inside of our heart? Can we admit this morning that we are a dark-hearted sinner? Do you realize that God is looking for you? Just like God was looking for Adam and Eve, God is looking for you not to destroy you, but to redeem you. Have you sensed him seeking you? Do you feel his spirit today chasing after you? See, God has sent Jesus on a rescue mission to rescue you from what's gone wrong in the world. And he's given us the message, not the message of religion, not the message of politics, not the message of good works. He's given us the message of Jesus. He sent us out into the world so we could be a part of the solution. And that's the invitation today. That we would repent. We'd stop hiding. We'd acknowledge where we are and what we've done. The invitation is that we would put our faith in Jesus. 
again. One of the best things about the church is we are people who come together to figure this out together. You're not on your own trying to figure this faith thing out. Now we get to walk alongside one another to say, man, here's, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's where I'm struggling to put my faith. Here's where I'm struggling to trust. So you're not alone. We're in this together to point one another to good works, to point one another to faith in Jesus. And then we have this invitation to take that message into the world. Say, what's wrong in the world can be fixed because of Jesus. Let's pray.